Hey everyone, it's Chad. Welcome back to Mission Daily. We have a giveaway for everyone that enters. You can win a prize at mission.org slash books. Steph, what can people win? Books that you love. Do you want to read like a CEO? Chad has a bookshelf that probably has, I was actually calculating in my head how much you've probably spent on books because there's so many in our studio. I'd say there's probably 500 here. So a fraction. You, this is, you don't even know about the hidden libraries oh, I have stored oh in my parents' garage. Oh, I forgot about that. Well, anyways, it's called Read Like a CEO because we are taking books off of Chad's bookshelf and we are putting it in a giveaway. Books are the best investment in yourself. And the reason why we wanted to do this giveaway, I recently started paying myself a salary. Yay, woo! And which is a major milestone. And I wanted to immediately give back to everyone out there that's listening that has helped us get where we're at. And it's really exciting. So this is my way of saying thank you to the listeners. So at mission.org slash books, uh, I picked out a number of books from my bookshelf and the top 30 people who enter. And you can see how to get more entries, all that stuff at mission.org slash books. Uh, but the top 30 people who enter get to pick one book from this list and I'll mail you a physical copy. I'll buy it. The next 15 get three books. So if you're in the top 15, you get three books from the list, your picks. And if you're in the top five, you get five books each. So this is pretty cool. And you can get more entries for every single email uh, subscriber you refer. Yep. And stay tuned for the next little ad segment because we will tell you why Chad picked some of these books oh, to get you excited. And mission.org slash books, go there, enter. And everyone who enters is going to get a copy of 100 Business Ideas. That's an ebook we created with 100 ideas to start making more money and yeah, maybe even start a business uh, this weekend. Yep. So enter the giveaway and good luck. May good. the odds be ever in your favor. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> I'm Jeffrey Wright, and you're listening to Mission Daily. Selected as best of 2018 by Apple, Mission Daily is the number one podcast for accelerated learning. Hi there, and welcome to Mission Daily. This is producer Rachel Kanya. In today's episode, Chad sits down with Bracken Darrell, president and CEO of Logitech who has more than 20 years experience in business management. Bracken shares some of his strategies for growth in both life and in business. He also explains why he thinks small teams are the best teams and how to manage risk in a business. Stay tuned for more from Bracken Darrell, CEO of Logitech. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Mission Daily. Today's guest is Bracken Darrell, the CEO of Logitech. Bracken, thanks so much for taking the time. Hey, thanks. It's so good to be here. Thank you very much. I'm excited about your new network. Thank you. It's uh, it's off to the races. It's cool. growing really quickly. And we wanted to get you on today because your experience at Logitech is really exciting for me when I studied it. And I think it will be really exciting for our listeners. So you first came on to Logitech, I think back in 2012, correct? That's as right. the president? Almost exactly seven years. And in those seven years, you've managed to do uh, I don't want to call it a turnaround because Logitech was already booming before, but you've managed to, among other things, help quadruple profits and revamp Logitech's design thinking, uh, among many other things. So if you could just walk us back to maybe your first year at Logitech and how you went from president to CEO, I would love to hear about how you came to the company. Yeah, I was, uh, you know, I had uh, spent my career in consumer products 
and I was uh, running a business in Europe about a uh, European business in Europe, Middle East, and Africa. And at that point, I didn't really care if I was ever a CEO. I just wanted to have a huge impact wherever I was. Huge is, is, a, is a dream, not necessarily a reality, but I wanted to have a big impact. And then when I got a, I got a call from a recruiter, so that's the way it usually happens in these jobs. And uh, I interviewed with my chairman, and then I got grilled for the next you know two months by every single board member at least <laughs> once, sometimes two and three times. I, they were very uncertain, clearly, that I was the right guy. They're probably right to be. And anyway, so I, I landed here, and the agreement was always that I'd be the CEO at the end of the year. But they they wanted me to uh, you know to really get in there and learn the business first. And they were probably a little afraid because we were in a turnaround. They had let yeah. the former CEO go. The business was in trouble. It, you know, they weren't sure they weren't making another mistake with me as CEO. So I think it was. They didn't say this to me, of course. Now I know this after the fact. But you know, so it was probably a safe thing to do to put me in the present job first. But the great thing about it was for me was I could really focus on what I loved, which was products. And so I, I spent the first year. You asked me what did I do during that first year, and you mentioned a few of them. You know, and, and your your listeners are going to find this painful to hear, and it was painful to do, but. The first thing we had to do was was actually eliminate a lot of jobs because we were really, as you said, Logitech's been growing for a very long time. When we stopped growing, we were still very good at growing the organization's size, and that leads to unprofitability, and that's where we were. And I, also, we were really top-heavy. So we took out about one out of every four VPs and directors. So we just eliminated those roles. I eliminated two two jobs in the first week that were between me and the products and me and the markets because I wanted to be closer mm-hmm. to everything. And I already had a great team here. There were a lot of amazing people like Jessica Monet, who's sitting right across from me here. And so we we had a great team. We just had too much stuff going on. So then the the second step was to move resources over into new stuff. And we did that. And uh, I could keep going, but but I, and I'm sure we'll get to another questions. Yeah, definitely. Um, I would love to just focus in on one of the things that you mentioned there, which was you removed some of the folks that were in between you and the product. So you shortened the gap let's call it, between feedback from the market and customers and partners? And why did you shorten that gap? And what did you learn? And how did that help you Yeah, get started? Well, you know, I didn't know anything about this business. And so I was, you know, when you don't know anything about a business and you come in to run it, you better understand what you're selling people. So I shortened that gap, especially on the product side, so that I could get directly into the product development process. So I had two meetings a week with with each business group that was developing new products, trying to get in the middle of the action. Because I felt like our portfolio was old and stale and and kind of, honestly, had been cheapened relative to what the company had done in the past, which was so good. So that was the main reason I did it. And I wouldn't pretend, I'm not Steve Jobs. I didn't come in with the magical, the magic wand, you know, that I could, you know, just wave it over and everything would be great. But I, I certainly could question things, and I was a new set of eyes on everything, and I, I had new standards. So I think that was super helpful. What's your philosophy on the first 90 days, the first uh, year inside in a new organization? Because, I mean, your career spans from General Electric to P&G, Whirlpool. You, you've worked in many different companies. What was your philosophy when you entered Logitech? Because you mentioned eliminating many VP and maybe SVP or director jobs pretty hard to make friends, pretty hard to build rapport while you're doing that. What type of philosophy do you have? Well, you know, first of all, you, you know, it's, it's one thing, no matter where you go, there are a few things you need to do. But here is my, my very direct and specific advice for anybody going into a new job anywhere, whether it's within your existing company or going to take over a company like I did. The first thing you go in, before you get there, you do your homework. 
by talking to the people you interviewed with, by or if you're inside the company, by really trying to understand what the situation is, you're really doing your homework. And if you can, make yourself either put a visual or a document together that says, here's what I think the situation is, here's what needs to be done, and here's what I'm going to do. So you get that ready as if you're going to walk in day one and execute. Then you walk in day one and you put that away. Then you go immediately to, if you have a boss, you go to your boss, you go to your peers, you go to everybody around the business, you say, tell me what's not working, why are we here, what needs to change? You bring your, your page with you everywhere you go. Nobody really knows what it is and they don't, they don't notice it. It's in your notebook, you know, or your laptop. And then you, you listen and you edit against that. By the time you've gone to everybody, it takes you two or three weeks, which in Silicon Valley time is a long time. So let's say it's two weeks. Maybe it's a week, depending on the size of the new job. And then you go back and you, you edit everything you had. And odds are you didn't have to change very much. Maybe you're 70% right. Then you go back to everybody and say, let me get this straight. This is what you told me or, or the people told me as I talked to you. You go through with each person. You explain what, what, what you heard, which, by the way, is what you kind of thought in the beginning anyway if, most of the time. And then you say, okay, here's what I'm thinking we should do based on the feedback that I have from everybody. Suddenly, everybody you've talked to now feels like it's they own it. You announce the next day, you say, here's the plan we put together over the last two weeks or three weeks, and sometimes a little longer, or a lot less. And then you're off to the races. I mean, you've got, you've got an army behind you without even having to do much of anything. And that is the best way to start a job. I love that advice. And it sounds like you know, you go into situations with a hypothesis that you're willing to test and be proven wrong about. Are there any examples from Logitech where maybe a story you could tell about where you started with a hypothesis and then found out that it was drastically wrong and had to course correct? You know, we I think of our company as, as increasingly a, a series of, of startups. So when I came here, we had kind of one and a half, we call it businesses, Today, we've split it up and acquired more and, and organically created more. Now we have 24, 25. And I think of those as individual startups. And so if you know, you know, because you're sitting here in Silicon Valley with me, that startups very rarely end up at the same place they started. I mean, some do, yes. you know, but 50% of them, 75% of them, they pivot. They pivot a lot or they pivot a little. And so I, I think you've just got to know that if you're starting into something, the odds of you being right are low. And so you want to do your homework and try to be right, but the odds you're going to be right most of the time are not are there. So you need to be really close to the customer. You need to not be afraid to try, and you need to risk manage it so you can try on the scale where it doesn't kill you. Too many people try to try to build stuff on a scale that if it doesn't work, they're dead. You know, or they've got to go raise a bunch more money. So, so that's the that's the formula. Have I have I get experiences where I failed? Hundreds, thousands. I mean, I can't even count them all. I'll give you one example. We we launched a product here the second year I was here. It was a cool product. It was a controller for the iPhone 5. You put the iPhone 5 in there, and you basically turned it into like a console controller. It was super cool. Sure. And and we were really excited about it, and so was everybody else. In fact, this is not going to mean much to anybody, but the, the forecast came back not a million, not $5 million, $35 million in the first year. Actually, more. I think it was $75 million in the first year. So I was terrified by that because I thought, my God, we don't, we're not even in this category. We've never sold this product before and, and $75 million. I'm terrified. I pulled the forecast down myself. I said, no way. But I was excited about it. It was a complete dud. It was awful. The experience wasn't better with that controller because the game developers didn't come on board enough. So we ended up writing off $3 million instead of 35. So the lesson is take the chance, but control your risk so you can digest it like we did. Because you've gone on to grow Logitech Gaming uh, as a business unit, and that's doing really well. 
Um, yep. How did yep. the the learnings in trying to release the device for or game assist for the uh, iPhone five? How did you incorporate that learning back into Logitech Gaming? Well, you know, I'd say I, I guess I have two answers. To that first of all, gaming has, and I, I assume your listeners are are, are younger than me, <laughs> but most <laughs> uh, of them not all will of know. them. So. So we have uh, grandmas and grandpas who are uh, big fans and uh, send us fan mail as well. well I only so look, I only look twenty five, but I'm actually fifty six. The um, <laughs> the I mean, we had we have exploded in our gaming business. We've gone from the first year I was here was one hundred eight million, and now it's six hundred plus. So it's a big business. It's our biggest business now. And so that little that little foray into trying to build a mobile game controller was a really short one. I wouldn't say it's taught us a lot about gaming, but it, it reinforced something that I really believed in, which was you just can't afford to play at a scale where you can't afford to lose. So you need to find a way to make that make that play at the size that you can afford to lose because things don't work. And you should the more capacity you have to do things that don't work, the more ambition you can have for the total business because you can try more things. We try more things today than the history of the company. You don't see them because they fail earlier than that. But we, we're, we're absolutely more ambitious with more variety of things that we're working on. And it's enabled us to grow much faster than we had in the last you know, seven years. But it's because we risk manage. So it's ironic. You know, it's like this pivot. You know, on the one hand, you got to risk manage so that you can actually take more risk. But in a way, you're basically de-risking it because you're giving yourself now, you mentioned 24 to 25 smaller attempts and you you viewed them or you said that you viewed them kind of as startups and you've got a great blog post or essay I should should call it that's called think pairs not teams and when when I saw that I was like quite contrarian when you start reading it but it makes perfect sense how do you go about implementing that inside logitech and looking for those entrepreneurs who can be a great pair I, I wish I had a better answer for you but let me first of all for your for your listeners explain what that means I grew up playing sports. You know, I was big. I was really into basketball. I still play basketball four times a week. I always thought about teams, and then I worked in very large companies, as you mentioned. You know, GE and P and G, and and I found myself in these really essentially big teams or big pyramid organizations. But I always thought, God, you know, the best teams seems like they're always small. You know, like it seems like mm-hmm. the IQ of the group goes down in proportion to the number of people in it. You know, if you have a group of twelve, you're really stupid collectively. But, but even if every person's smart, if you have a group of two, you're pretty smart. If you have a group of one, you're probably equally smart, not, not, not more, maybe a little less. So I tried to think, what is the right size team? Because I played basketball. It seems like five's good. And I grew up in a dining room table with my mom, my brothers, and my sister. And that was five. I, and I spent my whole career thinking about that till just recently. It finally hit me like a piano dropping out of the sky. I've been thinking about it wrong. It's not about teams. What is the smallest team you can have? It's two people. Right. You and I are a team right now. So you and I are not a good team because I don't know you well enough yet and you don't know me well enough yet. But if we get to know each other yet, we could be a great team. There are so many great pairs teams. Now, what happens after their pairs? If I add a third person, there's somebody standing next to me holding this mic. If we add him, now the three of us are here. How many relationships do we have now? Not two, three, tripled. Now we've got Jess across the table. We add one more person. Now I add two more people. From this three, it more the than complexity has grown. It goes to ten. It goes through the roof. Now imagine a pyramid with you know thousands of people. You've got so many so many complex big teams. It's a disaster. So get it simple again. Get it back to two people. If you're on a team, of, there's nothing wrong with a team of five people. But don't think of it as a team of five people. If you're on it, you think about who are my most important pairs. Who are the most important people here for me to be working really really well with? I'll try to do it with four of them, but I'm going to really do it incredibly well with two of them because this is where I can really make a difference. I think there's some interesting research that shows people who say that they have two to three friends inside their organization 
tend to stay at those organizations and perform far, far better. So we're in Silicon Valley, we're in the Bay Area, hiring, recruiting, and retention. These are some of the biggest challenges that companies face. How are you thinking about that at Logitech? And how are you thinking about culture and recruiting talent? You know, um, I haven't used a sur- an engagement survey here, but they, Gallup used to have one, that, and they had seven questions, just seven questions. And, and the number one question that correlated with business performance was, this question asked every single employee, do you have a best friend at work? Think about that. Do you have a best friend at work? Uh, who knows why exactly? We could all theorize about it, but it is really important. For us, you know, if you go, you can go look at our Glassdoor scores and look at, you know, read the comments. They're not all good, by the way. Our numbers are good, but the comments aren't all good. I read them every single day. I go into Glassdoor twice a day. It's the most objective thing I have so far because it's independent. Mm. It's anonymous. We don't ask anybody to go in there and do it. They do it on their own, and I get the I get tough comments. I also go around everywhere I go. I say, tell me what's not working. The first thing I say at any level person I talk to, I say, tell me what's not working, because the problem that we ha- that you have when you get to a top organization is you know people don't they, they love to tell you good news, but nobody wants to tell you bad news unless you ask for it. So I have to ask for it. So how do we recruit here in Silicon Valley? You know, we're actually pretty successful, and the reason we are is because they're the very large companies where you get free food the prestige of, of a big brand name on there, and the complexity of working in a very large organization. There are startups where you get lots of responsibility. You probably get free food. But your startup, 80% of the time, is going to be gone in a few years. And then we sit in the middle. We're actually a collection of startups. We do startups all the time that don't work internally. We give everybody a bonus, and they move on to another one. We have small businesses inside here. We have large businesses inside here. So we're like this sweet spot between the really big and the really small. And it's really, really easy to recruit into that. If we, if for most, most people who are, who are attracted to that are the kind of people we want. And what have you found from the younger generation? How do millennials or Gen Z or whatever, whatever you want to call it, how are you finding young people? What do young people think about Logitech as a brand, as a company, when you bring them into the organization in terms of employment or when you talk to someone how are young people thinking about it? Well, I think as an employer brand, most most young people don't think much about us. You know, if they know us, they kind of know us as the mouse company. As I said, we're in 25 mm-hmm. categories. We have five different brands. We're deeply in gaming. Most of them do know that. And then we're also, we have another branding game called Astro. We are in blue microphones, which is, you know, this is a, the other microphone that's not in the, you can't see here. We make microphones under the blue brand. And we've got earphones under Jaybird Sports. So we've got multiple brands, Ultimate Ears, Bluetooth speakers. You know, those round circular speakers are super cool. So we're in a bunch of different things. So, But we don't market that way because we don't want to because we want the authenticity of each of those brands to stand alone and those teams to really stand alone. So most people, before they come here, they say, well, I've kind of heard good things about Logitech and I know their products are pretty good, but I don't know mm-hmm. much more than that. Then when I start walking through the products or somebody does here, people are like, wow, I didn't realize you guys made that. First, we're a product company, so people love products. And, and I'd say generally that's a really good first impression. And then the more they learn about us and this kind of sweet spot between the really big and the really small, it gets a little sexier. And so I'd say, you know, for millennials in general, my, my general view, I, I have three millennials in my family there. I have three kids, 26, 24, and 21. And uh, I find them to be a lot like me when I was growing up. I mean, everybody talks about how different the millennial generation is. I think they're a lot like I was growing up, which is they just want to make a difference. They want it to be fun. And they sure. want to grow. And if we provide that, they'll love it here. When you design a product, when you create one of those new products or brands, I've read that you try to focus in on one central purpose and then design around that purpose to make it easier to serve it 
Could you talk a little about that and your design thinking? Yeah, you know what? Let me grab something if I'm not going to rip this. Yeah, sure. This is a good example. So this is this is one of the a product we launched. It's, it's do, done incredibly well. It's a big business for us. Ultimators. I'm not trying to advertise it, by the way. Feel free to buy it if you want to. Click to buy. But but this is a Bluetooth speaker, Mega Boom. Now, when we started that, there were no circular Bluetooth speakers. And the way we got to that was there was no Alexa. There was no nothing. When you bought a Bluetooth speaker, it looked like that. Jawbone. Remember Jawbone? I do. It was shaped like yeah. this. Now, why was it shaped like this? Because what happened was all speakers were shaped like this because you put them up against the wall and you listened. When they became Bluetooth, they were distracted from the wall. Our team started with the user and we said, who is the user? The user is now somebody who's sitting in a park, who's at the beach somewhere. The user is not one person. You don't use a Bluetooth speaker for yourself normally. You do it because there are three of us right here. So you put it in the middle. If you put it in the middle and it looks like this, somebody kind of feels like they're on the side and they don't they feel left out, you know, and you feel, and, and if you own it, you kind of feel like a jerk for having that person be left out. Then you're almost forced to say, it's, it's got to be a different shape. So we went to Circular and our engineer said, we can't do that. <laughs> so we have to do that. And so we had this discussion around, well, you can't do that. Well, you have to do that. And our engineering team's amazing. So they figured out a way to do it. So we launched the first cylindrical Bluetooth speaker. Then we said, wait a minute, the package has got to communicate with the things that look like. So we went to the Circular package, which was the first time anybody had done that too. So that, that's a, a little glimpse of how we work. Yeah, I like that philosophy a lot because it sounds like you're thinking about the experience, the the entire Absolutely. experience from start start to finish of using a product. And I don't think many companies think about like what type of feelings are they catalyzing in the people that are using the product yeah. or how are they augmenting the person's experiences? Could we talk a little bit about maybe the future of gaming, VR, AR? What, what are your thoughts there? And are, is there anything specific you're excited about? Well, let's start with VR and AR because I can move that across quickly. I sure. think VR and, and especially mixed reality will be big, but it's going to take a while because you know it's 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 in development now. You can feel it coming. You can kind of feel the tide rising, but it's going to be a while. So we're working in that space, but you're a few years away from really having anything meaningful there from a business standpoint. On the other hand, gaming is a juggernaut, and I'll just throw out a few numbers that maybe the grandmother in your audience like me will, will be shocked at the the 21-year-old millennial will be like, of course. So <laughs> more people are watching people play games online right now on Twitch and YouTube that are watching ESPN, CNN, HBO, Netflix, all combined every day. So it's, it's huge. More people watch the League of Legends final than watch any major sporting event except Super Bowl, and it will pass the Super Bowl one day. So, so this is the this is the where we are, and this is not a a fad like like some games are. You know, this is a secular trend. This will be in the Olympics. This will it's going to be in the Olympics. Just mark my words. I'll, I'll sign that right now. It's going to be in the Olympics. It's going to be moving into every high school and college. There are there are already um, scholarship athletes there, so it's huge. And for the people that would say, oh, this is a, a negative trend because people are static, they're not interacting with other people. I would argue that that's actually changing. So the nature of gaming is becoming way more di dynamic. Super social. Yeah. It, it's super social. And on top of that, when we start to talk about tread pads or whatever you want to call them for moving around while you're gaming, I see this becoming a really interactive field where many more people can win than can win in sports. So right now, if you don't have a certain, let's just call it like maybe genetic or, yeah. um, you know, familial predisposition to being good yeah. at sports and you yeah. haven't been trained in that, it's very hard for you to uh, to feel good or to ever excel at like soccer or basketball or anything. So, you know, you're a basketball player, but not everybody's good at basketball, right? I'm so either, gaming, <laughs> so, ga so gaming opens up this frontier 
where I feel like a lot of people can find what they're uniquely good at. Are your kids playing games? Uh, is anybody in your, in your family, have you tested any, any new games? Are there any you're interested in? Yes, yes, and yes. And, uh, you know, I think I'm going to focus on the part of your question about, you know, where's the gaming industry going? You know, when I was growing up, um, I watched way too much Gilligan's Island and Family Affair and shows your your group was never heard of. Cable TV was a problem then. You know, it was like a disaster. Cable TV developed and became like, wow, this is pretty cool. And now it's not cable TV. It's everything else. You can consume content. Sure. You can grow. You can learn. You can be entertained. TV's kind of addictive. Gaming also can be addictive. And, uh, and you have to, especially when your kids are young, you need to control it. But I think that the other thing that's happened in gaming that's just so exciting is those things like Discord and or honestly, just with Fortnite, with with your phone next to you, or even on your iPad, the the thing that's happened is this has become super social. I mean, these kids are socializing with their fr- their known friends. They're socializing with people from Russia and China and people all over the world. It's opened up the world. I mean, my my son who plays CS:GO is playing with people all over the world all the time. So I'm not trying to to suggest that gaming doesn't have downsides. It does. There are problems with, with gaming. But almost everything does. But the upsides are also huge. And if you look at things like, I'll stretch gaming and say, look at a Peloton. If you've, if you've ever heard of Peloton, it's the bike where you can take classes. In a way, it's another, it's another example of how gaming is going to develop where now I can get on a, a bike in my basement and I feel like I'm racing with 550 people and I'm watching them move up and down the ladder and then beat me and there's somebody in front of me encouraging me. And so I think gaming- Makes exercise is, a lot better. <laughs> Yeah, it makes it so much more fun. So I think gaming is has always been part of our lives, and this is just a new dimension of it. I agree. And uh, the type of play and interacting with other people that gaming facilitates can expedite trust. And yeah. trust is, it's what helps us accomplish everything. It's what helps us collaborate. As a leader, how do you think about building up trust with your team members? You know, I think it starts with uh, just directness and honesty. You know, one of the things that I was at a... Uh, a small gathering of some marketing, as a marketing group from in San Francisco, not too not too long ago, maybe it was a year ago, and somebody said, "Hey, you know," he raised his hand, he had a question. He said, "He said my boss loves Steve Jobs, and so my boss is like super micromanaging me and driving me crazy, and I don't know if Steve Jobs was like that or not, but that's what he thinks it was like, and I'm pulling my hair out, and it feels just terrible. It's so unnatural." And what I said to him was, you know, it all starts with, I mean, if your boss were here, I would say, you know, there was only one Steve Jobs and you're not him. You've got to be yourself. You know, everybody else is taken. Figure out who you are and then try to be that person. And whatever you do, then you're going to be authentic. And when you're authentic, you're a lot more likely to be trustworthy. And people will feel like, yeah, he's he's for real or she's for real, you know, because if you try to be something you're not, it really shows and it destroys trust. And so I always try to be myself and I'm very honest about who I am. I'm honest about my mistakes. Those are the things probably that really help you to build trust and it encourages everybody else to do the same thing. And what advice would you have for people who say, I want to be more authentic. I want to explore who I am. I want to shake off all the uh, maybe baggage from the past where other people wanted me to be this or that. How do I go about finding that authenticity and finding out who I am? I'm going, to, I'm going to tell a quick story, but then I'm going, to, I'm going to say that I don't know the answer to that. The story is I watched, I guess, the son or the grandson of Coors. You know Coors the beer? I went to this thing when I was 18, and it was all these leaders speaking. It was really cool. And one of them was him, and he is running the company, a very successful beer company. And he got up and he said, uh, he started crying while he was talking. And he said, I always wanted to be a doctor. And my dad said, no, you're going to run the family business one day. And I did, and I have, and now I'm retiring. 
and I want to be a doctor. You know, hmm. I guess the key thing is, I don't know what people want to do. I think I think it's really hard. You know, if you have a passion, you probably already know what it is and something you really want to do the rest of your life. There are people who say, oh, they want to be a doctor at age eight or whatever it is, and they stay, and they, they discover it and they stay with it. For a lot of other people, they don't know, you know, and that kind of goes with the authenticity thing. You're, there's a lot of, you don't know about yourself. I think when it comes to careers, and I'm, I'm deflecting a little bit, I think if you don't know, don't worry about it too much. Just do, go into something you like or you're interested in, and then view yourself as a product or a brand and try to build brand equity so that later you'll discover a lot of things you're passionate about. And as you get into those, you'll have built yourself into a brand and a product that's really attractive for those for those opportunities. When it comes to your, your personality and what it is that makes you authentic, when you're young, you should feel completely comfortable exploring being different from what naturally you want to do. There's nothing wrong with that. It's not authentic. You will be a little mm-hmm. authentic, inauthentic when you're young. You'll be in situations where you think, God, should I speak with a official voice or should I speak like totally relaxed and put my feet on the table? It's part of learning. You can't mature through that until you've been through it. So don't worry about it. But at some point, you will find who you are and then that will feel comfortable and you'll get all the reinforcement for that but from people around you and listen to that. When you think about your own career, have there been any periods of whether they're mentorship in a formal capacity from a board or mentorship that you sought out from uh, another CEO or something like that, how has mentorship played a role in your life? And are there any times where you feel like it made a huge difference? You know, I'm not a big fan of the word mentorship, and it's not because it's not a good word. It's because it gets explained as a formal thing that, you know, you kind of need to have a mentor that sounds very official and then that you need to be a mentee, which is official. You know, so I don't know if I've ever had a mentor like that. What I have had is friends, partners who I've learned a ton from, who have really helped me. And I can name a few. You know, my current chairman, this is gonna sound so self-serving, but it's not. My current chairman is just a terrific human being. He used to be in my job for 10 years, you know, and he's uh he's Italian and he's all the th- all the stereotypes of Italians, you know, he's big heart, cries in public. I mean, he's super He's, he's, he's all of them, you know, put together, but he's, mm-hmm. he's just a terrific human being and he has a lot of great experience. So for me, he's been a phenomenal coach, friend, mentor, whatever you want to call that. But I also have people that I would consider, I'm, I'm looking outside just for a second, my CFO, who is a friend of mine. He's a pain in the neck sometimes, but he's really fun and funny and he has been a good mentor to me. And I think, you know, we've been really good partners. So rather than look for for mentors, I would look for people you can just learn from. And don't worry about the label. Great advice. And speaking of your CFO, I think when you came on at Logitech, the R&D budget was something like $100 million. And you deployed that quite well, quite successfully. How are you and your CFO thinking about the R&D budget now? And are there any areas that you're deploying that money that you can uh, maybe share or explain why to us? Yeah. So, so the way, the, the big change we made in the first, over the first year and a half, I'd say that I was here was we took the R&D budget that was allocated to the core business, which is the one everybody knows for mice and keyboards. At the time we thought, wow, this business is in trouble. The PC's going down. Our business is going down. We're in trouble. So we said, we've got to build new things. So we immediately, we created this concept of tree plants and seeds. The tree was the the core business. Still going to be healthy for years, but it's not going to grow. Or we didn't think it was going to grow much. And then the plants were going to be new categories that we could get into that would grow fast, like the Bluetooth speaker business or gaming. 
And then the seeds would be new things, completely new things. Nobody would know we're working on, but they'd be like startups internally. So we we basically took 75% of the resources out of the the old business, the C&P, the core mouse and keyboard business. We put them into those new things. Fortunately, most of the new things worked. And you know what? To our surprise, in a way, the core business, the PC peripherals business, did fine. In fact, we were innovating better after we pulled those resources out than we had been before. We had too many things going on in there. And so to even today, the, you know, this last year, our, I don't know how much our, our PC peripherals business has grown, 5 or 6 7%. Not bad. I learned a lot from that. You know, like, you, know, you have a tendency to think, you know, I need to, I need to do more somewhere. I need to grow somewhere. I need to put more resources on it. Sometimes the best answer is pull resources away, get a small team thinking about it, and, and, uh, and let them go figure out what to do. Let's shift gears here a little bit. I want to talk about some of the lessons you've learned in your previous positions, because you've worked at a lot of big companies. And when people think of a large company or a large corporation, sometimes they don't realize how difficult it is to navigate those organizations, especially politically, because you're dealing with just thousands of people sometimes. Let's just cycle through some of the uh, the past positions you've held. When you were at General Electric, what did you learn there? What was a uh, a story or something that you like to tell that kind of sums up that experience? Well, you know, I, when I joined General Electric, I joined because I was kind of the, the next, I didn't want the next job that I had at P&G where I was leaving. And Jack Welch was running GE at the time. And the job that I had was going to report to this guy who reported to Jack Welch. So I was going to see Jack Welch four times a year at least. And I thought, wow, this is like being on the Chicago Bulls when Michael Jordan's still there. Even if I'm on the bench or, or the water boy, this is an amazing experience. It was. I mean, first of all, the, it, they were really talented people in there. And Jack Welch, every interaction I had with him was like priceless. I mean, I wish I were one-tenth as good as he was. It, I mean, it was just amazing. And I would literally take notes. He was also, What I learned from him was he was so funny. I had more fun with him in those meetings than I with anybody else because he was just always, he was serious about the business, but he made it fun. He was cracking jokes all the time. He'd give you a hard time. And then at the next minute, he'd be giving some, the, guy, the guy or the woman next to you a hard time and you'd all be laughing. But it was serious business, you know, and not always laugh and, and all the time. But, sure. you know, he made it fun. And, you know, it's interesting because as it cascaded down, it wasn't as much fun. So <laughs> it's really hard to translate that kind of charisma across the company. So creating a culture that's fun is one of the things we're trying to do here. And and I realize it can't just be because I'm funny and I'm not funny, but not just because I'm funny. It has to be in the culture. You have to kind of, because I, I want this place to be fun and and I want people to crack jokes, you know? It's quite a serious place, GE, but it's one of the things I learned was how much fun it could be. I feel like making things fun and trying to have a, at least a couple times where you play and people like let their guard down that's so, so important because you can start to, I feel like, connect. And comedy is really hard, though. Um, it is. There are many people these <laughs> days that are, if you're not a professional comedian and you're attempting to make jokes, you can put yourself at kind of like, you know, you can really risk things sometimes. What's an example of how you're going about making the Logitech workplace a fun environment? Well, I, you know, I, I, I believe me, I'm not a joke teller, so I'm not, I'm not trying to be fun by, by telling the latest, you know, joke, although I do have a few. Sure, sure. For me, it's fun and satisfaction, you know, and really being happy at work is more about just feeling comfortable where you are. And so one of the things we've done, which, which some people hate, you know, but I, I love, is we've opened it up. We're in Silicon Valley style, totally open office. And what that means is there are fewer formal meetings because meetings just pop up. You know, as you got a problem, the the woman two chairs down for you. If you got something you got to talk about, there's your meeting. <laughs> you just had it. Instead of I scheduled a meeting, I went to the meeting room. Half the people were late. 
I was I was late too because of my last meeting ran over because everybody was late to that. That's not fun. I mean, that is a nightmare. So open offices at least they push out a lot of the formality, and and formality is not fun. That's one thing's for sure. So the less formal you can be, the better. I'm in jeans and I've got my high tops on today. These are my LeBrons, <laughs> by the way. So the more relaxed and informal you can be, I'd say the more fun it is, and the more it gets rid of the the BS that really just gets in the way. Definitely agree. All right, so back to. Uh cycling through some other places that you've worked in your career. When you were at P&G, what did you take away there or any big lesson learned? The, the thing that P&G did the very best of any large company I worked in was focus on the customer. You know, and this is like the cliche of all cliches. You know, every book on how to create products or businesses says focus on the customer, lean startup, you know, develop with the customer. But it's true. It's really true. I mean, it, it, there's just no substitute. And, you know, no matter how many times I say it, we're still not doing it well enough. And we've brought design in the center of everything, which is really the ultimate safeguard. I mean, it's like the belt and suspenders because designers are, by definition, designing around an experience, an experience around a person, as we talked about earlier with, with UE Boom or Mega Boom. But, you know, it's the most important thing, and they they really focused on it completely. What about at Whirlpool? So hardware is uh, notoriously difficult. And uh, Whirlpool is a brand many people are familiar with. It's not exactly the most exciting brand, maybe, <laughs> um, but it's it's crucial to doing a lot of the things that we take for granted. Uh, what did you learn at Whirlpool? Uh, I learned a lot. You know, I'd say the thing about about the appliance industry is that it's incredibly cost focused. So you you come home, you've got a, a washer and dryer in your house somewhere, and a refrigerator and a dishwasher. You don't realize how difficult it is to, to compete in that industry. And you have to constantly be all about cost. I love saving money because you can invest it in new stuff. I hate saving money just to have, so that you have to drop it to the bottom line all the time. My CFO loves that, but I don't. So this is why I'm not in that industry anymore because it's just too cost-focused for me. But they were amazing at it. And I learned so much in it. And Mark Bitzer, who is the CEO of Whirlpool, is the smartest guy I know. And he does such a masterful job. But, but that's a tough industry. Yeah. Let's shift gears a little bit more here. What type of learning routine do you have, if any? So do you prefer reading physical copies of books? Do you read on your Kindle? Do you listen to audio books? So, so first of all, I'm a, I'm a lateral learner, you know, and it's easy to be at my stage of life. You know, I'm, I'm 56, so I don't have to learn as deep into my job uh, areas probably as I used to. But so I'm a very lateral learner. I'm, I'm very curious. So I, I'm, I'm reading, right now I'm reading a, a book um, about public policy and how the rise of women in university education was driven by public policy, or at least partly driven by public policy. Fascinating book by a woman from Duke, LaRonda Rose. It's, it's such a good book. And then uh, the second book I'm reading is on physics. It's a, it's a book on, by Brian Greene on, uh, on string theory, which is just fascinating. I mean, where we are now is so exciting. And then, Have you uh, seen his kids' book? It's pretty. Uh, so we just got that from my son. But there's like a picture book uh, Brian Greene wrote. It's pretty. Oh, cool. is that right? Yeah, he's so, so good. Yeah, it's awesome. They, yeah. Although there are a lot of good people writing physics now. Paul Ravelli is also good. Frank Close is very good. And then the the, the third book I'm reading is Bad Blood. You know, it's probably required reading for anybody in Silicon Valley. You know, it's just it's it's heartbreaking. You know, but but anyway, so the, I'm reading across the wide things. Things I tend to read physical books. I'm almost embarrassed to say it. I hope Jeff Bezos is not watching, but I do still read physical books. And I don't know why. I can't explain it. I, I certainly do have a Kindle and I have an iPad. I can, I can download books. I've done it. But for some reason, I still am stuck with physical books. It's, it's, I, I can't explain it. 
there's some research that shows when you have tactile feedback from something, it increases recall. So, Is that um, right? yeah, it's, it's not helping so me at all, Chad. I don't know. Maybe it's good. For other <laughs> <laughs> um, what about fiction or do you read fiction at all? I used to read, I was an English major in college, so I used to read a lot okay. of fiction, a lot of really good fiction. And I have, but not recently. So the, I would say in the last you know, five years, I really haven't read any fiction. I've tried to write a little bit. I'll share it with you later. Oh, it's nice. really embarrassing. Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. I would love to check it out. <laughs> um, yeah. I've checked out, I, I like your writing a lot. I've read the Think Pairs, Not Teams, and then Success is a Losing Idea. But yeah, I think that those are excellent, excellent ideas to get out there. What about when you have a moment to relax, unplug, hang out with your family, how are you thinking about putting the phone down and being more present with your family? Or yeah, what's that process like? Well, you know, that kind of ladders up to the concept of work-life balance. You know, it's, you know, it depends on where you are in your life, how do you think about that? You know, when you've got young kids, I don't know if you do, but who have young kids. and One son. Okay. So then they're married and they've got, yeah. they're relatively new in their career. They did, they're doing a startup, you know? And your definition of work-life balance is so different from mine. My kids are grown. I've got one at home. He's going. He's going back to school in the fall. He tried to become a professional gamer. You asked me that question earlier, and I was not going to answer it, but I just did accidentally. <laughs> and because it's not mine to share, but I just did. Sorry about that, Connor. <laughs> but uh, but anyway, so I think for me, I've always feel, viewed work-life balance. I don't like the term work-life balance because it's just all life, you know. And yeah. so you you just do whatever you whatever works for you. Like in our company, we, we're a work from anywhere company. Not every job can work from your home every day, but but we try to just say, you know what, wherever you need to work, wherever you want to work, as long as it works for you and the people that you work with, do it. You know, because life is too hard already in getting in cars and driving around and stuff to to make your the people you who employ you force you to do horrible things that don't make any sense. And we're in the video business, by the way. We we're the we're a huge you know video conferencing company, so we'd be crazy if we didn't support this. So, so I think work-life balance. I'm going to throw the term out and just say this is about figuring out what you want out of your life, setting priorities in your life, and figuring out what you want. And you know, some of it is planable, and some of it is through intuition. And I would just say, you know, if, if it feels wrong to you for a sustained period of time, change something. And when you think about like diet physical exercise, team sports. I know you're a basketball player and I think Logitech has a team uh, that you play on. How are, how are you thinking about that? And how has that been for you as a company having you know a basketball team? Well, first we should have won the league last year. <laughs> Anybody out there who played against me, I'm telling you, we should have won the league last year. We had the best team. I'll, I'll, and what league is this? It was Just, a, it's WFA league. It's a, it's a league that's okay. a inner, inner company across the Bay Area, but I'm kidding. We were beaten, but I'm I'll stay with that. We should have won it. But anyway, we have a pretty good team. We have good <laughs> players here. We have some really good players here. And uh, and it's really fun. It, rather than talk about the company team, which is a great group of people, I'm a basketball addict. You know, I just love it. I play four times a week when I'm in town. I play at 6.30 in the morning, three days a week, and at 6 o'clock in the morning, one day a week. And, and then sometimes the same week I play on Sunday morning or Sunday night. So I'm playing a lot. I love it. I grew up playing it. I'm addicted. It's my one guilty pleasure that shouldn't be guilty because it's good for you, except that I've got a frozen shoulder sure. and a knee problem that might probably need surgery. <laughs> but other than that, it's uh, basketball is awesome. Final thoughts here. If you could leave our audience with one thought experiment, call to action, or story that you feel more people need to hear. What would that be? I think um, one of the big mistakes people make is they they try to march up a career ladder. And they see careers as a ladder. So I'm on the first step of the ladder and then the second step. And those tend to be associated with titles, but not necessarily. 
first they join as a something and, and then they step up to a manager and they go to a director and the senior director and vice president. I'll just tell you, and this is not rhetoric, the best moves I ever made, I did go up a ladder, of course, but the best moves I ever made in my life were, were lateral and they were into new things and they were moving into new functions because I grew so much more. And sometimes they were stepped backwards. A couple of times in my career, I stepped backwards into something I'd done before. I thought I was above it, but it actually propelled my career because either I really performed well in that or by showing that I was humble enough to step back, the people above me said, okay, he, he's one of us. So I think don't, don't view yourself, your career as a, as a ladder. I don't think a lot of people don't today, but don't view it as a ladder. View yourself as a product. And I don't mean as, as a hardware product, as a, as a product, and build yourself. View everything you can to build yourself, both personally and professionally. Build yourself. Build yourself through reading. Build yourself through learning. Build yourself through podcasts like yours. Just always work on building yourself. And every few years, you'll be a, a more advanced version of yourself and a more interesting version of yourself. And you'll be a lot more interesting to other people, too. Excellent advice. Bracken, this has been a delight having you on. And uh yeah, we'll have to get you back on uh, soon. This is a blast. Thank I'd you. love to. Thank you, Rich. And someday you got to tell me the story of why in the world you have. Is this what is behind you? This is oh, this is Disney. This is stuff. a design. Yeah. So um, for every new, thank you. Um, so I sketched it out, and our illustrator, who's a world class, uh, he's done Despicable wow. Me and a couple other uh, movies, designed it. So for each podcast, we do. Do you uh, give it to the? Do like you give this. you give it to the person on the podcast at the end? <laughs> we can send if you if you want one of these in your oh, office. Um, we got our store set up yesterday, so oh, wow. we'll uh, we'll we'll send you. Uh, it's uh, I think it's let's see, it's twenty feet by sixty feet, and we'll uh, it's a, yeah, it's pretty big, but we'll send you one. Wow, and uh, oh, you yeah. can figure out what to do with it. Put that, but that sounds bigger than our building. We're small. Company. No, I'm just messing around. Okay. Just messing around. But um, <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for joining us. This was a blast. Thank you. Really, really appreciate fun. it. Thanks, Chad. See you now. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, they're a customer times five, Twilio, and Katera who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org slash studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, And if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right. Hey listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.